started carrying the pulpit around with me. <laughs> Looks a lot more authoritative when I go home and say, clean your room. Elder meetings, it works great. It's just a multi-purpose accessory. Well, please turn your Bibles with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. We're continuing to work our way through this pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning. And we hope that you enjoy worshiping with us as we continue to look at this chapter in Luke 15 about rejoicing when the lost repent. Here in Luke uh, chapter 15, we are uh, continuing through the last part of the chapter. We began last week looking at the parable we call the parable of the prodigal son, and we're going to look at that again, Lord willing, this morning and next week as well. And if you've found your way there to Luke 15 and you're able uh, to do so, please stand with us as we read God's word together in honor of God. And we're going to read the uh, beginning in verse 11 and read the story again together this morning. Beginning in verse 11, Jesus said, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, 
Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray that God would continue to to bless our, our time of worship today. Heavenly Father, you are a a great God, a God who is over all things, a God who sustains all things, a God who has absolute and and perfect authority over everything. And, And Father, we are those who have transgressed your authority, and yet you love us, and you have a love for us that is beyond our ability to understand or emulate. And and Father, we, we pray this morning that as we look at this story that demonstrates your, your great love, that, that we would, would have an understanding of, of how to respond to that love and that you would cause us to, to know you and to live like you. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, a friend recommended a movie to Whitney and me and, and told us that it was just a, an incredibly powerful, romantic story. And it wasn't. Uh, we, we watched this, this movie, and, and uh, now if, as I describe this movie, if, if you recognize the plot of the movie and you think it was just the most wonderful movie that has ever been, been put to, to screen, um, I apologize. You know, th- there's a reason I don't reference mov- many reasons I don't reference movies very often. But in, in this movie, basically the, the plot was this: um, it was telling the story of a couple, and it was it began in the present, and you saw this this older couple, and and they had this 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 relationship that had obviously lasted many many decades, and and as they were engaged in this relationship, they they loved each other with this deep love, and the husband especially had this sacrificial love that he showed for his for his wife. And the movie didn't just stay in the present, though. It had these flashbacks to the past. And the couple in the past, it showed how they met one another and how they, they began to, to be attracted to one another. And in my opinion, uh, they were both wretched individuals in the past. <laughs> and you had no real, I had no real liking for these characters. They, they were whiny. They were self-centered. And I, I kept watching the movie hoping that there would be something about these characters in the past that showed us how in the world they became this this couple in the present. But as I I watched the movie, and as we continue to watch the movie, everything about this this couple, to me, showed that they had no ability to understand sacrificial, selfless love. Everything about the relationship was was self-centered and self-seeking. I thought about the movie later, and I I wondered if the reason the screenwriters never showed us what took place in the life of this couple that helped them change from this self-centered couple to this this couple that that had enjoyed decades of marriage is if because the screenwriters themselves weren't quite sure what sacrificial love looked like. We live in a culture 
that in many ways encourages people to live very selfish lives, especially when it comes to the idea of, of love. And yet we may say that we exalt the concept of marriage and, and the idea of a couple being married for decades and a husband living a sacrificial life for his wife may sound kind of good in concept. I think as a culture, we simultaneously view people who live selfless lives in a negative light. In Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, we're going to, to look and we're going to see this story that he tells about this father. And what we're going to need to understand is that the father's love for his son is, in this culture, shameful. The, the love that he exudes for his son is a shameful, foolish love in the eyes of the culture in which Jesus lived. And the same is true in our culture to practice extravagant Selfless love is shameful in many ways in the eyes of our culture. For example, you know, you, you think about a, a young couple, a young guy and a young girl in this, this relationship, and, and our culture would tell them that it's not only permissible for them to live in, in kind of an immoral way, to engage in, in acts of immorality, our culture would say, there's nothing you can do about it. Of course you're going to engage in those types of activities. The idea of living a life of purity, of saying, you know what, I care more about this other person than I do my own physical desires and, and fleshly needs. I'm going to put that person's needs above my own. I'm going to consider their relationship with God and, and how important that is and, and the idea of purity and, and selflessly acting in that relationship. That's a foreign concept to our culture. And what's more, not only is it a foreign concept, but a person who lives that way is, is a fool. It's shameful to be committed to purity as a young person. Think about Tim Tebow and the, the mocking that he has endured as he's talked about his desire to wait until marriage until in, to engage in certain types of relationships. You think about a, a husband, a husband that says, you know what, I want to commit myself to, to sacrificial love for my family. What does our culture say? Our culture says that, that you're biologically predisposed, you're predisposed to, uh, to be a selfish person. A wife who says, look, I'm going to commit myself to, to sacrificing for my family is, is considered to be a fool. Children are told by our culture that you're going to be naturally selfish. In short, our culture, just as in Jesus's day, looks at selfless love as a very foolish endeavor. And so I believe that this message that we're looking at, this type of extravagant, shameful love that the Father engages in, is a, a love that we're going to have a hard time understanding in our own day and age. For those of you who may not have been with us as we began this series, I know there's several of you who are visiting with us for the first time this morning, and we're glad you're here. Let me kind of tell you a little bit about what we've been talking about. The main theme of Luke chapter 15 is that we should rejoice when the lost repent. We should rejoice when people who are lost, people who are separated from God, turn from their sin and, and turn to, to faith in God. There should be rejoicing that takes place when we see that. And we began by looking at the first couple verses of Luke chapter 15, and we saw that, that sinners were turning to Christ, and they were wanting to hear him and listen to his message, and the Pharisees and scribes see Jesus is welcoming of those people, and they become very concerned with it. It bothers them deeply. They grumble about it. 
Jesus, knowing the condition of their hearts, then tells these three parables in Luke chapter 15 that help us understand how we are to rejoice when the lost repent. And the second week that we looked at Luke chapter 15, we looked at those first two parables that Jesus tells, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And as we looked at those parables, we saw the value that lost people have. We're not going to rejoice when someone who's lost is found if we don't recognize that they have value, that they are of immeasurable value to our Heavenly Father. And then uh, last week, we began looking at this third parable that Jesus tells, and we looked at, the first of all, the part of the story that deals primarily with the younger son. And as we looked at this portion of the story that deals with the younger son, what we saw is that there is a beauty to repentance. And this beauty of repentance should cause us to take great joy when others repent. And now, this morning, what we're going to be doing is looking at the portion of the story that primarily deals with the Father. Each week, we're focusing on some aspect of this chapter that helps us rejoice with those who rejoice when those who are lost repent. And this week, as I've been studying these verses that deal with the father's rejoicing when his prodigal son returns to him, I've been very touched by what we see about God's character. I'm tremendously excited by this passage this morning, and and I hope that you too, as, as you look at this this, this portion of the story that reveals to us some incredible things about God and his character and his love for us, I, I hope that it excites your soul as well. There's some amazing truths we see about God's character and about his love for the lost that should transform our lives. You and I should have a greater ability to rejoice when the lost repent as we see God's love for us and God's love for the lost. In fact, kind of the central idea that I want you to think about this morning is that you and I cannot rejoice the way God rejoices until we begin to love like God loves. You and I cannot rejoice like God rejoices unless we begin to love like God loves. You and I, whenever we see the lost turn to Christ and engage in a relationship with him and become reconciled to God, we're not going to be able to rejoice in that the same way that God rejoices if we don't begin to love them the way that God loves them, if we don't begin to emulate the type of love that God has. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to walk through this portion of the story that deals with the Father. And as we walk through, we're going to kind of highlight some points of the story. And then I want us to consider five truths that help us love like God loves. Five things we see about the, the character of God. So let's, let's kind of walk through the story. Now, we'll kind of backtrack again for those of you who weren't with us in, in previous weeks. The story begins in verse 11, and we are introduced to a man who has two sons. And the younger of these two sons walks up to his father and essentially says, uh, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, you're of no value to me. There's, there's no benefit I, I gain from you being my dad right now. I wish you were basically dead so that I could have 
you out of the way and I could get all the inheritance that's coming to me. And the, the surprising part of the story that happens next is that the father says, okay, and gives the younger son his portion of the inheritance. Then this younger son takes his portion of the inheritance and it says that very quickly, he, not many days later, he goes off to a far country and he squanders his inheritance on reckless living. He engages in all those activities that he, that he thought would bring him happiness, those activities that his father as a parental figure stood in the way of. Now he's free of parental restraints. He's free of societal restraints. He's no longer in that, that village that he grew up in. And now he's able to engage in this activity to his heart's desire. And he pursues this sinful lifestyle thinking that it will bring him happiness. He rejects his father in every way imaginable. He said, I no longer wish you were alive, and I no longer wish to live under your roof, and I no longer want to live in accordance with your morality. The father, as a result of his son's decision, suffers shame in this culture. He has been shamed by this younger son, and those in the village and the surrounding area who know of the story know of the father's shame. After the younger son pursues sin, we see the results of sin. It says in chapter 15, verse Uh, kind of beginning in verse 14 it says that he spent everything he's through his poor choices exhausted his resources and now God in his sovereignty steps in and there's a famine and this son due to being away from his father due to squandering his his inheritance he now finds himself bearing the, the brunt of his sinful choices He's hungry, he has no ability to provide for himself, and so he begins to experience shame. He has to take on a a job with a foreigner. The foreigner tells him that he's to work with pigs, which would have been the ultimate disgrace for a Jewish person. And not only is he working for a foreigner, working in with the pigs, he still doesn't have enough to eat, and he longs to be able to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Now, as the scribes and Pharisees are listening to Jesus tell this story, at this point, you know what they're thinking? Yep, that's right. You step away from dad's authority, you thumb your nose at dad, you insult dad, this is the shame a son like this deserves. A son like this that treats a father the way that he's treated his father deserves to be with the pigs, deserves to be starving in a foreign country. But then what did we see last week? We saw that the son begins to repent. He decides that he wants to to turn from this life 
and, and lead a, a different life. And we talked about repentance. We talked about how repentance is, is understanding that the sin that you're in, involved in is sin and no longer being attracted to it, but, but desiring to turn away from it. And we talked about how repentance goes with faith. As you place your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you're saying, I, I no longer want to pursue this. Instead, I want to pursue you, and I'm placing my trust in you as my Lord and Savior. And, and we see elements of repentance here in the son's actions and what does he say he he says look this is this is terrible this is foolishness i'm I'm living with pigs this isn't the life that i had imagined when i left home and so he decides to go back he recognizes that being in the presence of the father is better than his party with the pigs he says this is what i'm going to say to dad I'm going to say, Dad, I've I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Instead, treat me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and went to his father. That's where we stopped the story last week. So what are the scribes and Pharisees thinking now? I think some of them would have said, all right, good decision. You've experienced your shame. Now you're going to go back to dad. And here's how the story goes in the mind of the Pharisees and the scribes. In this culture, here's how the story would have gone on from here. The son would have arisen and and gone to his father. And he would have gone to his father's house and his father would not receive him yet. Remember, this is a culture where shame and honor are huge things. And to understand the story, you have to understand shame and the concept of shame and honor in this, this Middle Eastern culture. And so uh, he would arise and, and go to his father's house, and his father, who'd been publicly shamed by the behavior of his son, would not receive him yet. And so the son would have to go and stay in the town. And so the son would go, and he'd, he'd stay in the, the middle of the town, perhaps in like a town square or something, and the people would go by and, and would insult him. And say things like, yeah, this is what you get for treating your dad the way that you've treated your dad. And just as his sin had been public, and the, the shame that his father had, been ex- had experienced had been public, now the shame that the son experiences is public. And at some point, a few days later, his father and his graciousness, and I think that some of the Pharisees and scribes would say that his father should do this. He should try to restore his relationship. Dad would go to his son And he would act very aloof from his son. Remember, shame, honor. He's been shamed. The son needs to recognize the honor of his father. And so the father would come in the presence of the son, and the son would would bow down before the father. The son would initiate kissing the feet of his father. And then the father would tell his son, here are the terms by which you can be called my son again, or which we can begin to reconcile this relationship. Here's the works that you do in order to honor me as your father. And the son would accept those. That's how the story goes in the mind of the Pharisees and scribes. The nicer ones. Maybe they even get Jesus' point. They've heard the first two parables and they, they see what he's getting at. Okay, we need to rejoice when the, the lost come to God. Fine, we'll rejoice, but they need to, you know, pay that's not the story jesus tells though is it (laughs) what do we see beginning in the last part of verse 20 
the son has arisen and gone to his father. And the father, while he was still a long way off, saw him. Dad has been getting up every morning, wondering if today will be the day that his relationship with his son will be restored. Today, by God's grace, will his son return home. And every night when he goes to bed, there is sorrow that today was not the day that God allowed him to be reconciled with his son. And today, he wakes up, and at some point in the day, while he has been continuing to wait for his son's return, and when his son is a long way off, He sees him, and I want you to look at the text and notice what happens next. What does he feel? He doesn't feel anger. He doesn't feel just just sorrow. He feels something called compassion. And that compassion causes all the events that follow next in the story. Compassion, we've seen it before in in Luke 7. We saw it with Jesus talking to the widow of Nain. There's there's compassion that causes him to restore her son to him. In Luke chapter 10, we saw the the compassion of the good Samaritan that, that compelled him to act when others hadn't. The father in this story sees his son, and his response is a response of compassion. Being moved within himself to act for the benefit of one in need. If the father had looked at his son and, seen, and, and felt anger, nothing that happens next would have happened. If the father had looked at his son and just been sad, nothing that happens next would have happened. If he had looked at his son and felt something different than compassion, the following events would not have taken place. But dad sees his son a long way off and feels compassion and an inward desire to act for the benefit of another person who's in need. And what does that cause him to do? It causes him to act in a shameful, extravagantly loving way. The first thing we see the dad do next is he runs. Now, you need to understand, noblemen in this culture don't run. In fact, uh, Kenneth Bailey, talking about this passage, a a commentator, says that um, many Arabic translations refuse to even use the word run to describe what the dad is doing here. They said he kind of went quickly, he hurried. They can't even, it's like they can't even bring themselves to describe the the shameful actions that the father is doing. To run, you you would have to expose your legs, you'd have to do all these things that, that, that a nobleman didn't do. But the dad shames himself. And people see this nobleman engaged the shameful activity of running. And again, Bailey suggests that one of the reasons the dad does this is the dad wants to be the first to greet him. He wants to spare his son the shameful looks, the, the uh, derogatory comments that the village is going to heap upon him. The dad says, I'm going to bear the shame instead of my son having to 
bear the reproachful glances and the derogatory comments and the shameful looks from other people. The father takes upon himself the shame of the son. And he goes to his son, he runs, and then he continues to shame himself. It says that he embraces him and he initiates the kissing. He kisses this son who's brought shame upon himself. Instead of the son kissing his feet, the father receives the son and shamefully embraces him, indicating that relationship has been restored. Now, son, what's son doing? I got this speech prepared. Remember he had this speech that he was going to say? We saw this speech in verse 18 and 19, right? Well, he gets through part of it. He says in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But all that stuff that he was going to say in verse 19 about treat me like your hired servant, he doesn't even get to it. It's like the dad hears blah, 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 son home. And so he looks to his servants, and his servants apparently have been following him as he's you know, trying to catch up with his, what's he doing, what's, what's going on? And they're kind of embarrassed for their master, and the, the, master, the dad turns around and says to his servants, look, here's what you need to do. I want you, I want you to quickly bring the best robe, that would have been his own robe, and I want you to put it on him. You know, get him out of these ragged clothes. And then I want you to put a, a ring on his hand indicating that he's part of our, our family and the relationship has been restored. And put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. And so this, this calf that would have been reserved for a special feast, a special occasion, the dad says now's the time to kill it and eat and celebrate. And, and here's what would have happened. This calf would have fed about 200 people. And the entire village, the entire village is to participate in this celebration. It wasn't just like dad and a couple servants got together and, and, and threw a party. It was the entire community coming together to recognize that this son has returned and that it's a good thing. You need to understand, again, this is the father practicing extravagant, shameful love. The father wants this to be a time of celebration. And all the shame that the son should have borne, the father is bearing. It says, my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to party. <laughs> they began to celebrate. What I want you to see as we look at the Father who forgave here, what I want you to see is that the Father's love is ridiculous in its extravagance. It's shameful in this culture's eye. The, the type of, of, of culture that demands a you know, eye for an eye, that, that demands that there be an uh, equaling out of, of shame and honor, it, all that is, is, is thrown to the side. And the father embraces a wayward son. I told you, I, I've been really encouraged by thinking through this passage this week and what i want you to do is i want you to see that the love of god 
in his work of reconciliation. I, I want, by the time you walk out of here this morning, to have a greater appreciation of, of God's love for you that will cause you to, to rejoice more whenever the lost repent. I think seeing God's extravagant, shameful love for you will help you see, okay, yes, I need to not be like the older brother, and we'll talk more about that next week, but, but we also need to understand I'm the younger son. I'm the younger son who has benefited from the extravagant, shameful love of God for me. First thing I want you to see about the character of God and his work of reconciliation. Number one, he awaits the return of his children. Number one, he awaits the return of his children. The father here is not passive. It's not like he wasn't really kind of thinking about his son. He was awaiting for his son to return. In, in Romans chapter 10, we, uh, Paul talks about how God is, is not far off and, and he's, he's near. And uh, last week we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 30. We kind of looked at uh, the first um, uh, kind of the first 10 verses and we, we talked about God's desire to have relationship with us. Deuteronomy 30 then verse 11 says this, for God's command for this commandment that I command you today is, is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither are God's words and commandments beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. God doesn't put his, his words and his commandments and, and, his, and his being in some distant, far-off place that we can never know, that we can never experience. God, God's word and our ability to know him is near. It's, it, it, it's close to us. God is awaiting the return of his children. He desires that. Joel 2.32 says, Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Last month, uh, Christianity Today ran an article where they were interviewing John Piper. And they were writing about his, um, kind of his ministry of racial reconciliation that he's engaged in. And uh, one of the things they talked about with him, though, was his relationship with his son. His, uh, John Piper has a son named, uh, several sons, uh, one of them's named uh, Abraham, Abraham Piper. And at one point in Abraham's life, uh, he was 19 years old and, and was decided to openly deny the, the Christian faith, and his dad had the very difficult task of having to excommunicate his own son from the church. Piper says in this interview, he says, the night after that excommunication, I called him at 10 o'clock and said, Abraham, uh, you, you, knew, you knew this was coming. He said, yeah, it's what I expected you to do. That has integrity. I, I respect you for doing it. And from then on, for the next four years, he was walking away from the Lord, trying to make a name for himself in disco bars as the guitarist and singer, and just doing anything but destroying himself. We were praying like crazy for him. And it says he, he came back to the Lord four years later, and the church had a beautiful, beautiful restoration service. He wept his eyes out in front of the church and was restored, and said this is church discipline at its best. Abraham Piper tells the story from his perspective in another article. And he talks about all the things that his dad did to demonstrate that he was constantly willing to receive him, that he loved him, that he desired a relationship with him. 
And he offers these suggestions to parents who are dealing with wayward children. He says, point them to Christ. Your rebellious child's real problem is not drugs or sex or cigarettes or porn or laziness or crime or cussing or slovenliness or homosexuality or being in a punk band. Uh, The real problem is your child doesn't see Jesus, doesn't see Jesus clearly. He said, acknowledge that something's wrong. He says, welcome them home. If, if your daughter stinks like weed or an ashtray, spray her jacket with Febreze, change her sheets when she leaves, but let her come home. If you find out she's pregnant, buy her folic acid, take her a 20-week ultrasound appointment, protect her from Planned Parenthood, and by all means, let her come home. If your son is broke because he spent all your money on women and liquor, then forgive his debt as you've been forgiven. Don't lend him any more money and let him come home. If he hasn't been around for a week and a half because he's been staying at his girlfriend's or boyfriend's apartment, urge him not to go back and let him come home. God is a father like that. He's a God that's not far off. He's a God that isn't some distant God wondering whether or not he should let you back or not. He's not a God that demands that you come and and grovel and do some sort of works in order to have a relationship with him. God is a God that awaits the return of his children. Isn't that beautiful? Secondly, secondly, as we think about God, the character of this father and the story, uh, he acts out of compassion. He acts out of compassion. Without this attribute of compassion, nothing else in the story follows. Nothing else follows. The father does some scandalous things, and all of them stem from compassion. You and I are dependent upon a God who acts out of compassion. Psalm 79.8 says, Psalm 79.8 says, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Micah 7, 19 says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. How is God able to desire to 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 remove our iniquities from us to to cast our sins in the very depths of the sea how is he able to do that how is he able to desire that well because of his compassion on us god looks on us and has compassion there's an inward stirring within him that desires to help us in our sin he doesn't it's not like he looks at us and says once they get better then i'll have a desire to have a relationship with us with them. God looks at us in our sin and has a desire to, to help us, to save us from that sin. He acts out of compassion, and his people must emulate God in this fashion. Thirdly, and here's a thought, you know, it's not novel, and, and, and so I don't know why I haven't grasped this truth before in the way that I have this last week, but but this is something I haven't really thought about before in relationship to this parable. Number three, um, he bears sin's shame. He bears sin's shame. I think one of the reasons I have a hard time understanding 
this concept that God bears the shame that my sin deserves is because I live in a culture that it's almost immune to shame, right? We live in the culture of reality TV. I mean, shame is like an instrument to bring one fame, you know. This past week, I was uh, reading a story about, uh, uh, and let me be careful here. I'm I'm not saying that what uh, President Obama did this past week was was sinful. I'm just saying I think it's an an indication of the fact that we live in a culture that that, um, maybe doesn't quite rightly understand shame. Uh, you know, the, the president of the United States appeared on a, on a comedy show and, and, and did a comedy bit, you know. I was reminded of an interview from 2002 that uh, David Letterman did with Ted Koppel. This was in July 2002. There was a program called Up Close, and, and uh, it was a very powerful interview that Ted Koppel did with David Letterman, the late-night uh, television host. And Ted Koppel asked him about presidential politics and how politicians use this program. And David Letterman said, well... Uh, in 2000, as the election was, was closer and closer, we had Al Gore on, we had George W. Bush on, and we had others on. And I'm not sure what we were doing, but we certainly had the presidential candidates on. And, and then, with less than a week to go to Election Day, we received a call from one of the candidates offering himself up to participate in comedy on the show. Not an interview, but they would be willing to actually participate in the comedy on the show. And Koppel said, this was one of the major con- candidates? And Letterman said, yeah, one, one of the two. And then Letterman is asked, well, how did you respond? Letterman says, well, I just had to laugh. I just thought, are we really that desperate? Or are they really that desperate? Are they really that silly? He said, it just seemed so silly. Koppel said, do you have any conclusions that you've reached on that? And Letterman said, they're silly men. Koppel said, well, what does that say about us? And Letterman said, well, at least I said no. We live in a culture that I think doesn't understand shame. It doesn't understand silliness. And it doesn't understand not, ju- not just silliness, but, but even deeper than that, the, the shame that one should feel as, as one contemplates one's sinfulness. The concept of, of sin is so foreign that the idea of, of feeling shame over sin is, is, is beyond comprehension. The father in this story engages in, in shameful love for his son, the type of activity that he's willing to go through in order to restore this relationship with his son is, is tremendous. Sin bears shame. Psalm forty four fifteen says, All day long my disgrace is before me and, and shame has covered my face. Shame is a big deal. Shame is a big deal. And shame is reserved for sinful people. Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, uh, talking to God in prayer, he says, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Uh, Sin is a big deal, Shame is a big deal. We, we bear shame because of our sin, and God rescues from the shame that our sin deserves. A Psalm 119, verse 6 says, if, I'll, if I obey your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. 
Romans 10.11 says the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so shame is a big deal. We deserve shame because of our sin. God rescues from us from the sin. And the way, and this is the thing that I just, I, I don't know, it, it just really struck me this week. The way that God rescues us from our sin and the shame that our sin deserves is by bearing that shame for us. The father takes upon himself the shame that the prodigal son deserves. God bears the shame that our sin deserves. And I think until we grasp the enormity of shame, we don't understand the enormity of God's love for us in bearing that shame. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that that Christ endured the cross despising the shame. He was willing to endure the shame of suffering as a criminal for our sins because of his love for us. You deserve to be publicly displayed naked, literally and figuratively, for all to see your shame. And yet, Christ did that. He hung on the cross a punishment that was so shameful that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. He bore that so that you would not be shamed. That's extravagant love. It's foolish love as our culture would define it. Number four, as we think here, number four about his love, he, he views works as worthless. He views works as worthless in, in terms of being able to be reconciled with him. The father in the, the parable doesn't even let the son get out his attempt to describe what he's going to do in order to restore this relationship. It's, it's like, the, again, like the son has just been saying blah, 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 and the father doesn't even, isn't even listening to this idea about, about being restored through some sort of works. You know, I'll treat me like a hired servant. The, he immediately restores relationship, and all works all works to attempt to restore that relationship are, are futile. You and I cannot restore our relationship with God on the basis of our works. Our relationship with God is restored by his extravagant, shameful, foolish, beautiful, precious love for us. Works are useless and an insult. Galatians chapter 3 kind of ties this idea of God bearing our shame and our works being useless together. Verse 1 of Galatians 3, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It's before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as, portrayed as crucified. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it indeed was in vain? In other words, how foolish is it to think that you can continue the Christian life on the basis of work since you began it by faith? And he says, a scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. 
The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by bearing the shame for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The father embraces the son as, a, as the son turns to him. God embraces us as we turn to him in faith, desiring that relationship of reconciliation. And the last thing, I'm not, I'm not really going to talk about this uh, this morning very much, just kind of throw it out there. We're going to be looking at it more next week. The fifth thing that we see God do is this. He, he celebrates the recovery of the lost. He celebrates the recovery of the lost. God, as he engages in this ministry of reconciliation, doesn't do so half-heartedly. He doesn't do so temporarily. We'll see how this thing goes. It's this celebration that he engages in as the lost return to him. This is a beautiful story, (laughs) and it's a brilliant story. Because as I've talked with many of you about this story over the, the past few weeks, you know what's been gnawing at us a little bit? What's been gnawing at, at me and, and maybe at some of you is, is what about the older brother and, and doesn't he kind of have a point? <laughs> Isn't the older brother kind of right? What's, shouldn't there be some sort of serious long-term consequence for the, what's going to happen to the inheritance? What's going to happen to this? And you know, you know what Jesus is doing in the story? He's pointing out that heart attitude that is latent within every one of us. You think the dad, as he engages in this feast, is thinking about, what about the future inheritance? What about long-term consequences? The joy of the father as he sees the son restored in relationship trumps everything. You and I, as we encounter the lost and see them turning to faith in Jesus Christ, our overwhelming emotional response should be one of joy. There's a tension here, and we'll get to it next week. What about the brother? How's he going to respond? What I hope you see is that you cannot begin to rejoice like God rejoices unless you love, begin to love, the way that God loves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us, a a love that is shameful in his extravagance, a love that bears the shame that, that we deserve. Father, help us to know you more, and as we know you more, to understand your love for us more, and as we understand your love for us more, to engage in that type of love for others. We pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.